and welcome to the ECE Quality Ireland podcast. I'm Celine Govern. And I'm Paula Walsh. And we are really pleased today to be joined by a guest. And that guest is Don Giesbrecht, who is the CEO of the Canadian Child Care Federation. And he has very kindly agreed to come on and talk to us today to give us some insights into the early years of childcare sector in Canada. And we can identify parallels between um, Ireland and Canada, differences and similarities, etc. So welcome, Don, and thank you so much for agreeing to come on and speak to us today. Oh, thank you so much. I, I'm so looking forward to this conversation and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Right. Um, so I thought, first of all, um, you might just start off by just telling us a little bit about the Canadian Child Care Federation, what their role is in relation to the early childhood sector in Canada. Sure. So we are an organization that is primarily made up of early childhood educators and childcare programs, both centre-based and family or home-based across Canada. Uh, We are Canada's largest childcare organization, member-based childcare organization. Um, We are not-for-profit. We are a registered charity. And when we speak, we speak uh, for ECEs and programs across Canada. Uh, Because we are a charity, uh, we have to be careful about how much advocacy we play because there are rules in Canada as to how much advocacy a a charitable organization can do. Uh, But one of our strengths most certainly is is bringing that voice, that grassroots voice to policy and program and professional conversations across Canada. Um, And and of course, Canada is a big country. It's made up of of 10 provinces and three territories. It's, it's a large space. But that said, you know, the issues that impact Canada's early learning and childcare sector are the same, coast to coast to coast. And so, you know, it is not hard for us then to, to speak to those realities because they're not fractured realities. They are common realities. Uh, so, you know, we've got provincial, what we call affiliate organizations. We've got provincial and territorial organizations who are, are part of our networks. Uh, we connect with our federal government. We connect on occasion with provincial and territorial governments. But more, more often than not, what we're doing is bringing that voice to the sector and convening that voice, um, most certainly pre-pandemic and now as we, as we move away from those restrictions or have moved away from those restrictions, getting back to those in-person meetings where we can discuss, strategize, and bring to the table those, those, those issues that are impacting early childhood educators and programs across Canada and strategizing solutions, evidence-based solutions for those uh, issues as well. That's so, Sorry, Paula, I was going to... <laughs> no, I was just going to ask there, just on the back of that question, that's really interesting, but um, so... You engage with your members then to get their voice. And do you then, does the CCF, the Canadian Child Care Federation, have a seat at the table as such and an influence on government policy or a voice there um, in relation to the sector? As much as we can, absolutely. We take advantage of any opportunity uh, to share our knowledge and our expertise. Um, most certainly, you know, more, one of our primary focuses is our federal government. Uh, and that is, you know, hence our name, Canadian. Uh, so we work most closely with them. Um, I've had the honor of 
of uh, being on um, uh, some committees at the federal level uh, that have uh, worked to support evidence-based uh, policy and, and just bring again that reality of, of the sector to the conversations. And like I said before, whenever asked and whenever given the opportunity, and I've had this uh, a, a few times to work also with provincial policymakers and governments, um, I take advantage of that as well. Uh, it's so important, right, that that not only are we bringing that pan-Canadian perspective, but we're then supporting our partners more locally uh, because, you know, we'll be there and they'll be there as well. So we're both bringing that same message and amplifying, um, you know, the the realities and, and then and the, the evidence-based uh, solutions to, to the problems. Sounds great. Um, yeah, it sounds amazing. And it, it's amazing for your sector to have your voice being heard at federal yeah. level, of course, which is really important. Um, just to go back a little bit for, to, before we go forward, Don, I'm really interested in in you personally because, you right. know, because we don't have many men <laughs> in the sector. Yeah. And funnily enough, my own son, um, who is a, um, a graduate in electronic engineering, has left that behind now at the age of 27 and has joined and is now qualifying as an educator and he has joined the business. So, um, as, as, as it is, you know, but yes, I'm really interested in how, how you are, where you are, what was your journey to be in your role? Oh, great, great question. At least I think it's great. Um, (laughs) so, I believe it or not, I, I had a career ambition to be a police officer um, in in my city uh, where I grew up, and um, that didn't happen. Um, and when you're in your early twenties, uh, when you know, sort of where you had this laser focus on this is my career goal, um, when it didn't happen, you think the world has collapsed. You know, hindsight says it didn't. But uh, I started uh, to substitute uh, on an on-call basis in a in a childcare program because, of course, I wasn't employed and I needed to do something. And and uh, which eventually, not in that program, but another program, uh, a job opportunity became available, and and I applied for it, got it, and um, you know, within fairly short time after that, I was promoted to to you know a leadership position in the program and then uh, when when the executive director uh, of that program retired I was hired or promoted into that and then you know one of the other probably more influential pieces as to why I got to where I am today is that I started volunteering with our local uh, professional association and um, was lucky enough to be voted in as the president or the chairperson of the association, um, which then connected me not only locally, politically, and within the sector, it gave me an opportunity then to connect on the national level, too, with the Canadian Child Care Federation and start there. And uh, there's just been opportunities then that have opened up for me um, to, to, you know, be where I am today. I've been in this role for just over 10 years. Um, as the CEO, but I was actually chair of the federation, so of the board of directors um, uh, prior to that. And I've been in this sector now, which is hard to believe when I when I think back on it, over 30 years, right? So, and I, I've stuck with it and I've, I've enjoyed every moment of it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I think 
you know, that is get said by others too, that opportunity knocks very quietly. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, I've tried to listen for those very quiet knocks and, and, and open those doors wherever I can. Uh, just interestingly, my wife works in the early learning and care sector as well. She runs a childcare program out of a local hospital. Uh, where their primary clientele are doctors, nurses, administrators. So, of course, during the pandemic, very important, very, very important. And so it is really, you know, she's done, she's been in the sector longer than I have. And um, so, you know, lots of commonalities in there for sure. Uh, But I've just enjoyed in, you know, working with children and families and understanding that how we have traditionally built and funded and supported young children in this country is so not sufficient, right? We have this incredible opportunity to to do more and better for them. And I've always been really motivated by that. And of course, the early childhood workforce too, right? The, these incredible people that, you know, we often say, and maybe you say it in Ireland too, that are so great, but they, you know, we lead with our hearts, not with our heads, because we love the work, we are passionate about the work, but it doesn't necessarily treat you as well as you treat it. Yeah, well, well said. Yeah, absolutely. And it would it would be the similar here, and I would I would imagine in other countries where the, you know it would be it's it's the same. Um, so now you're the CEO of the Canadian Childcare Federation, as we yeah. said. So could you describe maybe a little bit about what the current landscape is in the Canadian sector, like you know mm-hmm. in 2022? Who runs the services? Who pays the wages? You know, um, how is it funded and, and stuff like that? Yeah. It's it's really complex. Um, so let's start with the real, the, the highlight. The highlight, which is that in last year's federal government budget, the Canadian government announced the largest ever investment in early learning and child care, over $30 billion dollars. And they, the plan announced at the time is to create what we call the Canada-wide child care plan. Um, the other name or the other slogan, if you will, that's been used uh, primarily by the federal government and provincial and territorial governments is the $10 a day child care plan. Okay. Now, uh, I just want to stop there for a moment. And while they use that language, the actual policy goal of the federal plan is to have an average of $10 a day. And it only applies for zero to six, or zero to five, depending on, you know, where, uh, where it is provincially in terms of uh, when children enter school and and classifications like that. It's not looking at out of school or school age care. Okay, which is a gap, right? Mm. Because childcare doesn't end at age five or age six, it goes on, right? We know that. So, so that's a challenge, but nonetheless, it's it's still a big step forward. So Canada, again, being a really large nation and a federation, um, is then not in the position as a federal government to necessarily dictate to provinces and territories how um, how they are going to support their childcare sectors, because childcare actually is at the end of the day a provincial and territorial responsibility. The federal government provides money to them for this. Um, They provided and negotiated policy goals. So affordability, 
accessibility, quality, uh, inclusivity, right? These are sort of overarching goals that, that anybody who's a part of the plan has to agree to these overarching pieces. But when you bring $30 billion to the table, that's pretty persuasive to want to join, to want to join in. So to its credit, the federal government has negotiated 13 separate agreements with provinces and territories to transfer money um, to support the childcare sectors in each, each jurisdiction in this country. And so this where this is where it really starts to get complicated because again, it's very local how this how the system sorry we don't have systems for the most part in this country how the child care sectors are organized and funded typically canada not just typically canada is a market driven economy when it comes to child care so you pay for the service as a parent as a family there are a couple of jurisdictions or a few jurisdictions that have moved over to more what we call system systemic or supply side funding. So moving away from that market system to a supply driven system. Um, that's where we ultimately want to see this go, right? Because we know that we know that just depending primarily on parent fees is never going to achieve the goal of affordability. You're not going to achieve that. If you, if you uh, are wanting to support the early childhood workforce, depending primarily on parent fees is not going to do that. If you want to support quality, depending on and inclusivity and accessibility, depending primarily on parent fees is not going to do that especially in the day and age of inflation, right? Everything's spiraling out of, out of control. And so, you know, you can imagine that a childcare program, and you know this is, you know, their costs are going up. Well, where do we go? We go back to parents to support it, which further impacts their own economic security and doesn't get anybody any further. Mm. So that this is where, you know, the federal money is supposed to make a real big difference. It's supposed to shift a lot of this over to that supply side funding model. But the problem in Canada, like I said, is that every province and territory is different. And we still, in many jurisdictions, rely on subsidy systems. So if you if you uh, don't make enough money as a family and you qualify, then you get a subsidy, partial, maybe a full subsidy, et cetera. But again, that doesn't solve, you know, solve the, the issue for us. And, and more so, I would suggest, and I, I say this all the time, I believe that subsidy systems actually perpetuate a welfare model of child care, right? It, it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, and it still positions child care as, a, oh, you know, you need it, and so we're going to give you some money to help support it, um, versus building on what we know to be true about early childhood, that they're this incredible first five years of human development, right? Treating it like that somehow in, you know, not just in Canada, but I'm sure in Ireland and the United States and all these other Western nations, we arbitrarily started thinking, well, education starts at age five or age six, but we know it starts in utero and for sure at birth, right? And and so we're having to shift that dynamic 
and that understanding. And then we also tie it in, and I think it's shifted quite a bit in Canada, frankly, because of COVID. I think if we can say anything good has come out of it. It shifted that dynamic of um, the, the a sentiment in this country. Not, and I'm not going to say it's a majority sentiment. I'm just going to say it was still an undercurrent of your children, your problem, mm-hmm. right? Why should my tax dollars go to support your child and, you know, worse, your babysitting, right? So to talk about, you know, the professionalization of the sector, you know, there's still, I would say, you know, some out there that still look at childcare as, as a babysitting function more than a opportunity to help children grow and develop and really support families. So we've got this overarching federal goal of, again, that average of $10 a day, and, and it's not happening in the first year the goal is to have it in place by 2025 2026 that every jurisdiction and some have set a faster target and a faster timeline uh, to achieve that goal so that's great Um, but the, the the generally agreed to goal is by the end of 2025 or into 2025 2026 if you have a preschool child you will be paying no more than an average of ten dollars a day for child care that's huge. That, that is absolutely huge for families. Now, keeping in mind the word average, right? So that what we what we interpret that to mean is that there's going to be families based on their economic circumstances that will pay nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's others uh, who, based again on their economic circumstances that will pay more. Yeah. But it's still going to be affordable. It will still has to be affordable, right? Uh, and so that is a big shift. In, in in Canada. Yeah. So that is yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Dom. Sorry, I thought oh, you were talking when you finished. Um it sounds very similar to where we are at it present. Does. So yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't it, Paula? Yeah. So I mean I, I have to take a big deep in breath <laughs> when you said 30 billion. I wrote it down. Um yeah. Because we, we in the last budget as well had the highest proportion of investment into the sector ever which was 220 million million not billion um and i kind of thought oh my goodness but of course as you say canada oh no literally 300,000 educators educators versus yeah. ireland has 30,000 so you could estimate yeah. that we are at, you know about 10% the size so investment is yeah. probably quite similar yeah. and our time scale would be quite similar as well in terms of bringing down you know the the first idea is that um parental fees will be frozen in the first year for example and and then there is um you know, year on year changes and more investment, et cetera. So I would say we're 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 quite similar in terms of investment. And and we do have um a new minister who seems to understand the sector um a little bit more. And um well I feel I feel he does. But my question then to you is as you're speaking, so just to give you some background, I am what's called a provider in Ireland. So I um have owned and operated a small rural service in North mm-hmm. County Mead for 20 years. And I'm opening a second one this September for my sins, um, which will be very similar, small rural in, in a local yeah. village, which currently has no service, absolutely yeah. nothing at all. Um, yeah. And so my question to you is, and I know it's different, of course, depending on territories, etc. But in general, are services very large, 
chain operated, as we would say, or are they, you know, are there small providers like me or are they very kind of state run in in primary schools or who actually yeah. runs them? Great, great question. Uh, the majority of childcare in Canada is small. It's small. One one site, one pro one program. Mm-hmm. Now, again, because it depends where you are and how it is structured in your in your jurisdiction. If, for example, you know Toronto, a world yeah. you know that's a city that's known. So Toronto's in the province of Ontario. Ontario has what's called an agency model. And an agency model means that you've got, you know, kind of a head office and then you've got home and family child care, um, uh, what they call early on centers, which are drop in programs for children and family in, in the community. And then they have child care centers. And some of these are really big, really big. Um, they, you know, will have hundreds of sites uh, or and or hundreds of hundreds of providers under their administrative umbrella, and we'll have potentially thousands of employees. Okay, typically again in Ontario, the agencies are going to be not for profit organizations, but they are community based. They are not government run, government funded, but not government run. Okay. There are some smaller for-profit chains in, in Canada. Again, really depends on where you are. Um, and, and there are some of the, the larger um, national uh, or multinational, I should say, uh, for-profit chains here, but they are not, um, they're not, you know, they're not everywhere. They're not everywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, very typical in, in most regions that you'll, you know, again, community run, um, you, you know, you may have one site, you may have two or three sites, but they're not large organizations by and large, by and large. Yeah. Which is I, for me, and I suppose, look, and I'm speaking from my perspective, um, for me, I think the smaller services, um, well, first of all, in rural Ireland, where the big chains won't come, you know, I mean, I'm opening in a village that has never had its own childcare service. And, you yeah. know, the reason is that it's just not profitable enough. Um, for for the larger services to come into. So, um, you know, and, you know, I feel we offer really, really good quality, you know, fair inclusivity. And um, I just think we offer something in small communities that maybe the large chains can't, you know, offer. Yeah. And, and they can't offer because financially it's not viable for them to come yeah. in. Their model is so, so different. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, um. That, that's it's kind of what I thought and, and not unsimilar I think Don to where we are again so I'm seeing so many similarities here yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. between us all so you know yeah. my next question would be about staff and wages Paula do you want to um, what yeah. I'd really like Don to ask you about next um, just on the back of what we were talking about funding and different things like that and um, I'd be really interested to know about about the staff qualification levels um, that are, are what well, I don't know actually if they're regulated for in Canada. Um, in Ireland here, yeah. um, prior to 2016, there were no minimum qualification requirements for the sector. And in 2016, wow. yeah, okay. in 2016, it was introduced um, to be what we would call a level five, which I suppose would be like um, a year's further education after secondary school um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 
you know, to be a leader of a room or like a supervisor in um, a, a preschool room, you need to have sort of an extra two years on top of that. Still wouldn't be sort of the equivalent of a university degree. Um, however, yeah. um, the cur- current government strategy here in Ireland, um, which is called First Five, and it's sort of at the time frame up to, from between, I think it was 2020 to 2028 or 2018 to 2028. And mm-hmm. one of the main objectives for the sector in that is um, a 50% degree led, um, so bachelor's degree led workforce by 2028. So that 50% of people mm. would have a degree and the rest of them will have I, uh, either this you know, a, a sort of higher, further education, level six, level five qualification. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But everybody has to have some kind of formal qualification as it stands currently. So what is it like in Canada at the moment? Mm-hmm. Does it, Is yeah. a degree required? Is a qualification required or not? Or how does that yeah. work? So I'm going to go back to my tired theme here already, that it depends on where you are in wow. this country. Okay. So again, because childcare is ultimately the responsibility of the provincial and territorial governments. It's up to them to decide what is, who gets to be called an early childhood educator and what are their qualifications that are required. So there's some jurisdictions in in Canada um, that require, in in other words, to be called an early childhood educator or practice as an early childhood educator, you need a two-year college diploma not a university degree, a college diploma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, that's not a bad thing. I want to be clear about that. That's not a bad thing. Um, but and it, it then it depends as well where you are as to, well, how many what we call credentialed ECEs are required in every program. That's a provincial. So it goes as high as 66%, but it drops much lower in other jurisdictions. So in other words, so if you're at 66%, that means out of two out of every three of your staff have to have a credential. And, and there's only one province like that. So this is one of the things then that is really missing out of the Canada-wide plan. Okay, And so this is something that is really at the heart of what we are advocating for and working with with our partners across Canada to push forward. And because it sounds to me like you have maybe not a fully thought out, but definitely some good pieces of a workforce strategy, mm-hmm. right? When you need 50% of your employee or people in the sector with a degree and the others with at least some minimal standard of education, I'm looking at that thinking, Ooh, that's, that's pretty good because it, the way it works here is that yes, you have a certain number of credentialed staff that you need, but basically outside of that, as long as you, you know, essentially have your grade 12 education, you can work in, in childcare in this country. Mm-hmm. And so there are some jurisdictions, again, some that do require that once you are employed in a child care program and in, in where, where you are, you do have to go and take some education, some within or sort of after that first year of employment or within that first year of employment. But that is far from good, right? Mm-hmm. That's really a patchwork of, of, of policy and of, of you know, supporting quality and supporting um, professional practice. 
So what we really want to see happen in Canada is we want to see the federal government and the provincial and territorial governments get together and help figure this out. Because the workforce issue in Canada is coast to coast to coast. It is everywhere. We cannot recruit enough ECEs to get into the sector, and we cannot retain them. And it was bad before the pandemic. It's even worse now. And one of the other parts of the Canada-wide plan is that there are really big expansion targets. Well, you cannot expand if you do not have a competent, capable, professional workforce. So this really ties back to what I said earlier about, you know, a lot of Canadians not necessarily, and even governments, not necessarily understanding that quality piece, right? Mm-hmm. That, that you know, anybody can do it. Um, it's not a big deal. And it's really then up to ourselves, like as an association and the work you're doing is to help support that 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 push to professionalization and and certainly in canada you know i think we do have a couple of parallels frankly and interestingly enough both female dominated professions one being nursing where you used to just need a two-year diploma to get in to be a nurse now you need a minimum of a university degree so they figured that out right teaching being the other, working in the formal education system. My father was a teacher. Um, he, way back in the 1960s, only needed a two-year diploma. And then in the 70s, that changed. Now you needed a university degree. So he had to go back to school to get his university degree on top of that diploma. So there are pathways and precedences out there as to how other occupations have moved forward. And so, you know, we need to follow some of those lessons and, and certainly don't ever stop pushing for that, you know, that professionalization of the sector, because I think it is just so important. We will not solve recruitment and retention till we figure out all the intricate pieces of workforce and quality. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, just oh sorry Paula it's so many similarities again Don with ourselves and again we could use the example of nursing and teaching exactly the same very very similar um where they were able to go from being um you know maybe one or two year I know primary way back used to be a two-year diploma and now it's in actual fact you know it can take six years now to be to, to qualify as a primary or a second depending on the route that you take you know so It's very, very similar. And, you know, then, of course, it's that lack of professionalization, isn't it? That I don't want to say allows, but that means that our staff are always underpaid and that they're not paid at the same. Well, certainly in Ireland, um, early years educators are not paid anywhere near what a primary school teacher is paid. In fact, they wouldn't even be paid half of it. Do you know what I mean? And, yep. their, and their terms and conditions are intermittent. They're not paid over yep. the summer. They're not paid over Christmas, yada, yada. So, you know, what is what is the pay scale like? Is Are we talking minimum wage or is it, you know, again, you're going to say territorial and I understand that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, so certainly pre-pandemic, if you were 
grade 12, or maybe you had a foreign credential that didn't qualify to be called an early childhood educator, and you're just sort of that entry-level person coming into the sector, chances are you would have made in and around minimum wage, whatever that happens to be in the jurisdiction you're in. Similar here, yeah. But that's not going to cut it anymore, right? And again, the pandemic has moved that needle because, you know, fast food restaurants are having to pay lots more than minimum wage to retain stores like grocery stores, um, supermarket, you know, uh, just, you know, Walmarts, things like that. Do you have Walmart in Ireland? We don't have Walmart. We we call it Aldi and Lidl. (laughs) Or Tesco. Which, yeah, yeah, the the grocery store. Okay, I've heard that. Right. So, you know, they've had to move their, their compensation. I'm, I'm hearing from people coast to coast to coast again that are losing their staff to other places like that because they're just paying more money. And it's a less stressful job, yeah, less totally. stressful, less demands. And, you know, I don't blame them. You got to do what you have to do for your own, your own, uh, for yourself and your family. So, um, it is fair to say, though, and, and uh, you're right, it depends where you are uh, in this country, but it is fair to say that the common theme is that if we use this language, credentialed, so if you have a, a, a college diploma, and in some cases a degree, so some people do have degrees, I'm not saying they don't, um, in early childhood, um, you are not being paid comparable to other similarly re- similar requirements for education, um, scope of job, et cetera, et cetera. You're far below the market uh, where where you are. Yeah. And so we have got to play catch up to that. Right. And that to me is, is the most, to use Maslow, that's your, that's your hierarchy. That's where it all builds off of. Absolutely. And that's so interesting because I just recently finished my um, my research for my master's dissertation and it focused on the professionalization of the workforce from an Irish perspective. And, you know, I made those comparisons between, you know, teaching and nursing and that kind of thing and looking at, you know, entry level sort of mm-hmm. um, wages for the different sectors. But what I found, you know, what I think and this links back into the piece you were saying, that missing quality piece that people need to understand to make that connection between, oh, okay, now we see why it's worthwhile to pay these people, you know, a, a decent salary. Um, because when you look at, I think, you know, what constitutes being a professional? What does it mean to be a professional, to be recognized as a professional in a professional sector? You know, and, you know, obviously people outside the sector need to recognize it, that it's professional. It has to have associated professional qualifications that are a minimum standard required. But also, you know, attitudinally, the people working within the sector need to see themselves and portray themselves as a professional, you know. Um, So there's a lot of um, different elements there, you know. And um, but I, I totally agree with you. You know, it's that quality piece that sort of bridges that gap between people thinking you're a babysitter and people thinking you're in educator and you know but then people say well hang on there's care and education and or care and learning and yes but do we really need to keep sort of differentiating could you shouldn't it be taken for granted that for children at that young age care goes hand in hand with their education do you know they're not mutually exclusive you know yeah yeah, yeah, that bit always drives me a little bit mad. I'm also a qualified <laughs> secondary school teacher. And 
you know, I, I take offense at the idea that in secondary school, I simply educate. I mean, of course, I care yeah. for my students. I care deeply yeah. for them and their well-being yeah. and their needs. Yeah. And I, when I go into my classroom every day as a secondary school teacher, my very first thing is care. Yeah. You know, I say hello to them. Yeah. I see how they are. You know, so I think Paula is right. I, I think, you know, it should be taken for granted that educators yeah. care in the same way as nurses care. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, and, and I think that that yeah. is taken for granted. So yeah. I don't know why we have to keep having this. Yeah this argument about it. Yeah. yeah. But I think oh, the ratio I... of care that's required versus, yeah. you know, the ratio between care and education obviously is different dependent yes. on the age group. You know, the zero yeah. to, 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 to 18 months child, there'll be more care, but there's still education. Now there's a ratio yeah. shifts as the, throughout yeah. the lifelong yeah. learning journey, if, yeah. uh, if you will, of, yeah. of the child, you know. Oh, um, this is, this all makes so much yeah i echo everything you both said i mean it's kind of like you know it's like saying if you teach middle school or senior high that that's a teacher but if you teach elementary school you know you're again just part teacher and part caregiver like you know it makes no sense if we if we approach human development as a continuum from birth till death right you're learning the entire time you're growing and changing the entire time but it is interesting in that so this is a number of years ago we actually did a project as an organization it was before i was with the organization called what's in a name we went out to the canadian sector and said what should we call ourselves we couldn't get agreement we could not get agreement. So every now and then, and I don't remember the last time we did it. It's not that long ago. We went back onto our social media. So not exactly a scientific poll by any means, but we just brought it up again. What should we call ourselves? Like what's, what's the preferred uh, name? And certainly early childhood educator came out as the leader. Okay. But there was nuances to that. Um you know, there was some family or home child care providers that said, well, I'm not an EC, I'm not an early childhood educator, I'm a provider. Oh, okay, okay. So, um, and then others who have their credential in ECE said, but why should somebody who doesn't have their credential be called an ECE? Mm. I was like, oh, you know, these are all good points. Now, where did we settle in on it? Whenever we communicate, we just, we use, you know, we use... ECE or early childhood educator is the encompassing language for the workforce. And then we add and providers. So that try to wraps it around. Yeah. But I fully agree that on our path to professionalism, Pauline, and, and when you look again at how other professions have moved forward, we need everything you described earlier. And, and we need to get past some of these semantic pieces and just settle in on it and start moving forward on it. Mm. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, you know, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's not only do others need to understand what we do, but we need to be cohesive in, in what mm. we say we do. Absolutely. It's half the battle, you know. Let's not be our own worst enemy. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and th- I suppose the other thing I was just interested to know is, you know, um, What's your take on the this the ten dollar a day childcare? Can you can you, do you see it working? Yeah. Do you or would there be is there something that you feel you would change about it or do you think can you see the the rollout going to plan? I think it is the potential to be historic and transformational. 
And, and that's what we have said from day one. We, the, the challenge is, is again, just because how Canada is so big and how it's governed, um, is to get everybody up to a certain level because, you know, it's just here, there, and everywhere in terms of quality access, um, like I described, you know, workforce requirements, et cetera, et cetera. And we're only one year into it. And, and, and so we're talking about dramatic change. And of course, with any amount of change, we all know this, comes pushback, comes confusion. And where do we go from here? And I think this is a really important point, And I don't use this as an excuse for anybody. But outside of four out of 13 jurisdictions in Canada, so only four have ever spent any time thinking, let alone planning, for how do you build a child care system? Only four. And so that means everybody else started from absolutely square one. How do you build a system? What is all needed to build a system? And so, you know, there's this, if you've ever seen the movie Moneyball, there's a, a great line in it that I like to use right now. And that is, we are the first through the glass, right? And it's going to be messy. Mm. But the opportunity is there. We just need um, political leadership. We need fortitude at the political level and vision. And we still need to, in some circumstances break through some of those ideologies that want to just keep perpetuating and supporting the structures they have in place rather than saying hang on this is how we got to this point and how we've created the mess we're in we need to not shuffle the deck chairs we need to throw the deck chairs off and rebuild the entire deck. Yeah, yeah. That's and, where we're at. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I do think, our, yeah, Ireland is at that point as well where we need to get radical. Yeah. Um, and, and and I do think we can do it. I have no doubt that that we, like yourselves, can do it. Um, and we are capable of this because, and we know that we are because we have proven it in the last 30 or 40 years in that, you know, it's it's the ordinary provider on the ground, really, who built the sector and who ran the sector. Yeah. And now, only now, is the government funding really coming. So we know we have the expertise. Yeah. You know, we know we have the qualifications. We, we know we can do it. And we do need that radical change. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, you know, for two countries that are so different, certainly in terms of size, gosh, we're so similar in terms of <laughs> sector, yeah. you know. Yeah. So yeah. I just have one last question for you before we let you go. And that is something that was asked to me recently. And I thought that's a great question. So (laughs) if, if you could do one thing, if you could make one change, if you had a magic wand and there was one thing that you could do for the sector, Mm -hmm. what would you like to see happen? Fulsome workforce strategy. We've got to support the workforce because without it, everything doesn't function the way it should we use, and we all should use, the analogy of the of the three-legged stool, right? And the three legs are 
quality, affordability, and accessibility. And so really we need to approach it from needing to make sure that all three of those legs are supporting the seat of the stool. And so I, I'm not trying to, you know, just sort of single out the workforce because if I leave the other piece, the other legs off, it will fall. But that said, I think that is the strongest leg on the stool. Yeah. You cannot achieve anything else and even more so kids deserve it yeah. kids deserve great people to here, here. work with them each and every day and and so that will tie a little bit in and i, I know it's on your website too about right the rights of the child yeah. what if, if we look at things and we look at excessive quality child care from the rights-based perspective all of this would fall into place yeah, absolutely. But if we start with the workforce that supports the rights, that afford, yeah. supports affordability, that supports quality and accessibility, if there's one thing, that has to be it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And you know what? I think you couldn't have ended on a more apt note, Don. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we, we it was just super interesting talking to you this evening or today in where you are. <laughs> um, you know, really, it was it was so interesting, you know, and I think... I know as somebody who's gone through sort of the whole degree and, and master's process mm-hmm. in early childhood education sector, you know, whenever we're writing up, you know, uh, whenever students are writing up their, you know, um, assignments and dissertations and they're looking at all the OECD reports and the statistics, yeah. there's nothing like actually talking to people, you know, and communicating yeah. to really, really, you know, learn and, and, and bring the whole, the whole, um, thing to life. So I found it really interesting and insightful. And I'd just like to thank you Great. so much for your time today. My thank pleasure. You. We'll, we'll, We'll get you to reciprocate at some point in the near future, and we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll flip tables here. We'll interview you and and uh, get the thoughts from Ireland because it is interesting. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to attend any international conferences or anything on early childhood. It's it's not just Canada and Ireland; it's global, right? Yeah. The issues are global. There's some nations that are doing this really well, but then there's the rest of us. Right, that are still finding our way, but at the same time, I uh, there are very few nations in this country or in this world, sorry, that are not rethinking early childhood. That's yeah. just where we are at globally, yeah. and uh, I, you know, I do hope at some point in all our collective careers that the landscape on which we look is much different than what it is today, not just in our own nations, but for all children around the world. Absolutely. So uh, just for anybody who, um, just to remind you, it was Don Giesbrecht from the Canadian Child Care Federation, the CEO, who was speaking to us today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Don. Thank you.